Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. The Answering Machine of Ron Goldman, June 12th, 1994. Ron, 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 Ron. Hey, Bonehead, it's almost 10. I'm debating if I'm just going to drive over to your house or not. I want to get moving here. Probably give it about 10, 15 minutes. Call me. Later. Hey, Ron, what's up? It's Eric. It's 20 after 10. Wake up, Ron, you bum. What are you doing? Uh, all right, I'm going to finish watching the show, and I'll probably head over. Call me later. Ron, where are you? It's 11. Call me. Page me as soon as you get up. I think I'm going to start heading over there in a little bit. All right? Later. Hey, Ron, this is Stuart. It's about 10.45. I just was curious if you wanted to come to work today. So, talk to you later. Bye. Hi, Ron, it's Patty. I know you're at work, so I'll leave a message. And it's 12, and I know it's probably really busy. But don't forget to come visit. That would be great. Thanks, bye. Hey, Ronnie, uh, this is Dave. Um, I don't know if you're ever gonna get this or not. Uh, let me know what's going on. If the name is a coincidence or if it's not, obviously. Ron, this is Jeffrey. If you're dead, man, you'll hear from me up above. I love you, man. I just heard on the news right now. My fingers are crossed and I'm hoping it's not you. Rumor went around town like fast. Wildfire. Trying to get a hold of your parents. I love you, man. Take care. Hey, Ron. This is Todd calling. Hope you're doing well. Because I was just watching the news and they said they found... They found, they found somebody dead named Ron Goldman over in Brentwood on Bundy. And I'm just like, fuck. I hope that's not you. If you feel like calling me back, let me know you're okay. I hope you're still alive and doing well. Later, man. Ron, it's Trish. I was just calling you back and I wanted to see if you're okay. Okay, bye. Hi, Ron, this is Kelly. Um, can you call me? We heard something on the news and I just want to make sure it's not you. Call me, bye, as soon as possible, anytime tonight, okay? Bye. Ron, this is Kimberly. It's Monday night. I haven't talked to you in a while. Heather Burke just called me and said something happened to you. If something didn't happen to you, call me back. I need to talk to you. Bye. Hey, Ron. I just wanted to hear your voice one more time, and uh, I hope everything works out for you. Goodbye, Ron.
Hey guys, so we're starting off our episode today a little bit differently, as I'm sure you've noticed. In terms of what you just heard, we got our hands on the transcripts of messages left on the answering machine of Ron Goldman on June 12th, 1994, which was the day of his murder. Those were not the real messages left by his loved ones as those were not available. So we had them recreated by friends and family of ours who were willing to do that for us to try to paint a picture of the sense of urgency felt on that day and how things moved from concern to panic to horror. We are discussing the OJ case today, but unlike other times the story has been told, we are focusing on this episode on Ronald Goldman. He's been referred to as the forgotten victim many times in association with this case. And we really wanted to educate everybody who thinks they know everything about the OJ Simpson case a little bit more about Ron Goldman and his experience. So that being said, welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting across from Alexis Linkletter and next to Billy Jensen, who has on a fancy little watch today. Billy looks good today. Maybe it's because it's in. We're actually recording this in the day for daylight. once. Daylight, and you Give know, some sun, Billy. We usually know. see Billy in his like vampire self, yeah. in Something. the darkness lurking around. I feel like I'm melting right now. I know it is quite hot, but uh, what day is it, Billy? It's Happy National Poets Day. Are there any others? That doesn't do anything for me. <laughs> it was like National Senior Citizens Day. You or know something. what? Oh, and that's better than Poets Day because yeah, you know what? We I, do yeah, love well, our senior citizens. Well, Billy loves the owl poem. You have to right. give him that. Oh, I don't love the owl poem. Yes, I do. was just playing devil ga- devil's advocate with that. But Ooh. you know what? I was voted class poet in high school. Mm-hmm. I know you've talked about it before. Yes, but last week my first book went in stores, and while it definitely has a very goth poetic title, "Chase Darkness with Me." Inside, it's about me solving murders instead of writing goth poetry. And of course, I had to thank you ladies. Yes. And I would like to give you the... I, I would. You know what? I think, Alexis, you should read it more than, than Billy, Jack. What? <laughs> I did introduce you to Billy, Jacqueline. That's true. Rude. So let's see. To Alexis Linkletter for helping me soar. And Jack Vanek for keeping me grounded. That's right. Always here to knock you back down. That's right. It's my <laughs> here job. Here to lift you up. <laughs> I'm here to bring you back down. And I, That's and cute. I, and Thanks, I really Billy. love you guys. So thank Aww, you. We, we love, love you, you more. Too. That was very sweet. You did not have to thank me. But I'm glad you did. No, I'm Sucker. happy to be thanked. Thank you. You should thank yeah, us. If I, if I, honestly, if I didn't thank Alexis, I know I would, I would have, have heard for it. Not that, not that that's the reason why I did it, but. Yeah. Alexis would be giving you shit forever if you didn't thank her. Yeah. I'm a very emotional person. Yeah. I would have woken up with a horse head in my bed. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Wait, what? It's a good <laughs> Godfather reference for anybody. I'm a bleeding heart and I give and I deserve. I give and I give I and I give. Back. Yes. Exactly. All right. Well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you. On June 12th, 1994, it was a Sunday in Los Angeles. The Gay Pride Parade was happening along Santa Monica Boulevard in West Hollywood. And the third game of the NBA Finals was on TV. People were heading to the theaters to watch Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock deal with a bomb on a bus in the movie Speed. 
but a little after 10 p.m. on a quiet street in the L.A. suburb of Brentwood, two people would be murdered. What happened that night in Los Angeles would become one of the most talked about crimes in the history of not only the United States, but the world. The first degree exists because we want to tell stories of crime through the eyes of someone who was one degree away from the murder. And our guest today is quite possibly the most recognizable first degree in history. She is Kim Goldman, sister of Ron Goldman. There are more true crime shows and podcasts than ever before, but if you do a search for the names Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown on the podcast app, surprisingly, nothing really comes up. And we understand why. People think that they've seen it all, they've heard it all, and the investigation into the murders of Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown are probably one of the most analyzed crime in American history after the Kennedy assassination. So what is new that you have never heard before, even if you are an expert on the O.J. Simpson case, is really a deep dive into Kim Goldman's perspective. She has a new podcast called Confronting O.J., in which she essentially is talking to everybody involved in the case and you know, interviewing them, like what went wrong? How, how did this return a not guilty verdict and sort of piecing things together and picking things apart and interviewing the people who were directly involved in not just that outcome, because that we learn is kind of something that was beyond anyone's control. But we are looking at a process that Kim is going through and you can follow along with her on her podcast. And it's just been incredible. And there is a lot of evidence from the crime scene that wasn't presented in the trial. And in this episode, we are going to focus on the crime itself in chronological order, including all of the evidence that has come to light over the last 25 years. And in addition to that, getting into the experience of Kim, who, you know, the Goldmans weren't connected to OJ. This was a complete, imagine hearing the news of like OJ Simpson and my brother, what? Yeah. Like the Browns, Nicole was married to OJ. This was just like a cosmic shuffling of the deck, like I always say, and just the shock and horror of having your family implicated in this unwillingly has baffles me to this day. So it is going to be a completely new perspective on this case. And the last thing I'll say before we get started is that we are operating under the assumption that you have at least a cursory understanding of the case. You know what the outcome was in the trial. You know the impact it had. You know that he's guilty even though he was acquitted. So I say this because there's no possible way to go over every nook and cranny of this investigation, of this case, and of the emotional and pop culture toll it had on the world. So that being said, we're ready to go. And please don't crucify us if we miss anything. There's just no way to get it in an hour, even two. So here we go. The morning of June 12th, 1994, Ron wakes up at his Brentwood apartment at 1663 Gorham Avenue in Brentwood. He gets dressed and goes to Barrington Field just off of Sunset Boulevard to play softball with his friends. The game ends and he heads back to his Brentwood apartment and gets dressed for work. 425. He leaves his apartment and walks the five minute trek to Mezzaluna restaurant. 4.30, 4.30, he clocks into a shift. 6.30, during a shift, Ron runs into his friend, Nicole Brown Simpson. She's there with her kids and family to celebrate her daughter, Sydney's dance recital. 
They say a quick hello and Ron gets back to work. Nicole eats dinner and leaves. 9.33, Ron clocks out of work and starts his closing duties at Mezzaluna. 9.37, Nicole's mother, Judy Brown, calls Mezzaluna to let them know that she left her glasses there during dinner. 9.45, Nicole calls Mezzaluna about the glasses and speaks to Ron, who insists on dropping the glasses off at Nicole's to save her the trip of picking them up. Ron hangs up with Nicole, takes the glasses, and goes home to take a shower and change. He leaves his apartment and drives the six blocks to Nicole's condominium. It's now just past 10 p.m. Ron walks up to the condo at 875 South Bundy Drive, just a half mile from the Mezzaluna restaurant. Nicole's condo sits in the center of three other condos. They all have a small private courtyard at the front, and to enter each one of them from the front, you have to go through a gate. Now, what we're about to tell you is a mixture of the evidence that was presented at trial and the killer's confession that was presented in a manuscript for a book. So Ron walks past the other condos and arrives at 875. He goes up a short 10-foot brick-covered walkway, surrounded on both sides by lots of foliage, and presumably rings the buzzer at the gate to be let in. Ron enters through the gate and sees Nicole. But before Ron can give her the glasses, a figure appears out of the darkness. And Ron recognizes the man. Anyone in the entire Western world would have recognized this man. He's wearing a stocking cap and gloves and is wearing all black. The man hits Nicole, knocking her out. Ron steps in to come to the aid of his friend. In a split second, Ron is in rescue mode. He's thinking less about fighting and more about trying to make sure Nicole is okay. But in that split second, the attacker hits Ron with a punch on the right side of his face. Ron falls to the ground. Ron is six foot, 171 pounds. But the attacker is a big man, 6'1", 212 pounds, and he's built like a world-class athlete. He's built like a guy who could rush over 2,000 yards in a single NFL season. The attacker, let's refer to him by his nickname, OJ. OJ produces a fixed blade serrated knife and place it at Ron's neck, picking him up off the ground. He's now grabbed Ron's arms and put them behind his back. And he is holding the knife at his throat. And he's talking to Ron. You think you're tough, motherfucker? He says. The knife right at Ron's throat. Ron tries to free himself from OJ's grasp. His arms are pinned, so he starts trying to kick his way out. With OJ holding his arms from behind, Ron begins to lift his legs. OJ moves the knife away from his neck and starts to stab Ron in the legs over and over and over again to get him to stop. He turns him around and begins stabbing Ron in the abdomen, chest, neck, and face. The surprise attack, the knife wounds, the speed and ferocity of the attack were too much. Ron is not going to make it, but he kept putting up a defensive posture. And the attacker, who is wearing leather gloves, loses a glove in the struggle. And because of the lost glove, he actually cuts his own hand on his own knife during the attack as he is stabbing Ron. He also lost the knit cap he had been wearing. OJ thrusts the knife into the left side of Ron's neck, cutting his jugular. Ron falls backwards into the corner of the courtyard between two trees. He dies within seconds. 
The attacker, OJ, is now a killer. OJ now goes to Nicole, who is lying inside the courtyard at the bottom of the steps heading up to the condo. OJ picks up Nicole and holds a knife to her throat from behind, just like he did with Ron. He thrusts the knife into her neck, cutting so deep that he nearly decapitates his ex-wife. The knife actually nicks her spinal cord. With the blood no longer reaching her brain, Nicole also dies within mere seconds. The frenzy is now over. OJ possibly discovers that he's missing a hat and one of his gloves. But since the courtyard is so dark, he can't find them. And there's a lot of blood on the scene. In the darkness, he doesn't realize that he's left a lot of footprints in blood. The time is now around 10.15. Two hours later, two of Nicole's neighbors find her body. They call the police, and the police find that there are two bodies in front of 975 Bundy. Once the police arrive on the scene and the sun comes up, this double homicide hits the news. Suspect wanted for a double 187 in West LA Division. Suspect named Orenthal James Simpson, OJ Simpson. Nicole Simpson and the man found with her had multiple wounds. OJ Simpson has not been seen since he arrived late yesterday at his Brentwood estate. Family members and friends stayed with him through the night and continued arriving today. A police forensics team began a search of the crime scene and OJ Simpson's home. Investigators removed several pieces of evidence from both properties. A blood-soaked glove, according to the Los Angeles Times, found at OJ Simpson's home and believed used during the killings. A second newspaper reports the matching glove was found at the crime scene. Police refused to say anything about the investigation or the nature of Mrs. Simpson's relationship to Ronald Goldman, the second victim. So this is Los Angeles. Uh, One of the victims here is the wife of a celebrity athlete who was very loved. Uh, So to say that the media latched onto this and ran with it is obviously an understatement. Anyone listening to this would know that. Mm -hmm. What a lot of people don't notice is the reporting on Ron. Initial reporting on Ron, it was Nicole Brown Simpson, ex-wife of OJ Simpson, and a man. Yeah. Or he was the an, an anonymous man for unidentified man. And you gotta understand like the confusion um of of Ron's family. This caused a lot of confusion because even when they did start to say Ron Goldman, that's a name in Los Angeles. That's pretty common. Ron Goldman, I bet you there's at least two hundred of them yeah. in LA. So then it's like you move to that couldn't be my Ron Goldman. Why would the hell so you know The reports of Ron's murder spread and friends flooded his answering machine with frantic love-filled messages, some of which we heard at the top of our episode. And they were all hoping this was a mistake. It's got to be a different Ron Goldman. But there were more than 15 messages the day after these murders on Ron's machine. And the messages left before the news of the killings depicted a popular guy. One caller asking him to pet sit got people asking him to go to drinks and to dinner, to play softball. I mean, he was a very, very well-liked person. You could tell that from something as small as his answering machine. You know, my brother, um, he, he was very, he was very optimistic. Um, he had a very, um, positive outlook. Um, you know, he always thought that I was daddy's angel. Um, and, and so we had a, a lot of competition. Well, he had competition with me, and I and I mean that because he thought I was like the favorite kid. I just was more studious. I was more focused. Um, I was 
probably because I didn't want to get in trouble. You know, I was more responsible for the two of us, but I was so envious of his carefree, like energetic way that he looked at life. Like my brother wasn't a book smart kind of guy, although he did okay in school. He just, he loved life. Like he just wanted to embrace it all. And I was probably a little bit more hesitant because I had rules I was supposed to follow. So I think I envied his approach. Um, and you know, as he got older and, you know, when we moved to California, he just, he soaked it up here. I mean, he just really, my brother was like a geeky looking kid when we were in Chicago and then he came to California and the sun, like we always said, the sun kissed him, you know, and he just blossomed into this gorgeous man who just like started working out and he got tan and he just found his, found his voice here. So this double homicide hit the news really, really hard. Um, but despite that, the Goldmans didn't hear the news until 5 p.m. the day after the murders. So Patty Goldman, who was Ron Goldman's stepmother, was just enjoying an afternoon at home when she got a weird message on her voicemail machine. And basically it was the manager of Mezzaluna looking for Ron, saying that he didn't call in for a schedule. And it alarmed her. It's one of those things where it's like you get one of these calls, so-and-so didn't show up here, you know, emergency contact, they call the number. And then when she called him back, he just said, yeah, ma'am, I'm looking for Ron. He didn't call in for his schedule. She scolded him and said, why would you call me and worry me like that? I thought something was wrong. And the manager apologized. I'm sorry. I'm just looking for Ron. Yeah. So an hour later, Ron's father comes home and he's walking through the door and Patty um, yells at him, Fred, hurry up, pick up the phone. You have to talk to somebody. Something has happened to Ron. And the call was actually from the coroner's office. The woman asked Fred, did you hear today that Nicole Brown Simpson has been murdered? Then she said, well, I hate to tell you this, but your son Ron was the other victim. And with those words, their lives were changed forever. And their lives were changed forever. And one of the first things that the police and the Goldmans probably wanted to figure out was how did these people, how did Ron end up there? So how exactly did Ron, Nicole, and OJ converge on that night? Ron Goldman was introduced to Nicole Simpson by a mutual friend at a Starbucks coffee shop two months before the murders. For a while, Ron and his friend didn't even know that Nicole was OJ's ex. Ron gradually became pals with Nicole. They'd work out at the same gym. She let him drive her white Ferrari, which is tight. 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 And she invited him to her table at the Renaissance, where she dined with a handful of friends on Thursday nights. Their relationship was platonic, but it wasn't perceived that way in the media. Because there was a ton of speculation that made it seem like they were involved in a romantic relationship. And that just ended up not really being true. And it was completely unfounded. People just speculate, which happens all the time. People draw these conclusions about women all the time, where it's like, if someone's killed with someone, you assume something is going on. But people had a difficult time believing that a 25-year-old kind of hunky guy in a single woman driving a white Ferrari could be platonic friends. So many jumped to conclusions about Ron. He was a waiter and he was a sometimes model. His driver's license photo, he looked really, really gorgeous. His head was looked, his head was cocked back. He was wearing a bandana. He had amazing hair. And these images circulated and rumors spread. And in an instant, the world had created its own Ron Goldman, a character that's smooth talking, tanned, and toned. And they made judgments about that which were unfounded. And we see this often in many cases. You don't usually see it happening to men. So this is kind of unique. 
where, you know, they made all these assumptions about him and broadcast that all over the world. But Ron was a really fun guy. And he actually also appeared as a contestant on a dating game show called Studs. And the show was hosted by comedian Mark DiCarlo. And Golden was introduced as a 23-year-old tennis pro. So this was two years before the murders. And at the end of the episode, Ron was paired up with a young woman named Diane. All right. Right next to me is uh, Ron Goldman, a 23-year-old tennis pro. Give him a big hand for coming down. Ron, we'll start with you. Uh, you make a good impression on the phone over with a woman? Uh, I guess so. Um, I don't like to talk a lot on the phone, so I'm kind of blunt to the point. Just get, let's get it going. Be ready at 8. I'll be there. Boom. Be there. Okay. Yeah. All right. We asked the ladies what, they, uh, what their impressions were of you when they talked to you on the phone, Ron. And here's what they said. One of them said, rough, wild, and oh, so sexy. <laughs> said this guy is mucho macho yeah! third lady said uh oh i got a date with Polly shook oh. <laughs> uh oh now got come on say it right uh oh got a date with Polly short uh <laughs> connie connie no oh <laughs> what'd you say constance I said, this guy is mucho macho. Really? Why? Well, because when I first talked to him on the phone, he had a deep voice, like a man should. And I thought, uh -huh. I thought this guy better be hot with personality like that, so. Meaning his personality was great, or? Um, he was kind of, like he said, straightforward on the phone, to the point, kind of cocky, you know. Hearing that clip of Ron is such a, incredible glimpse into who he is just a guy who's 25 he's young he loves life he's he's confident he's having a good time but now we have to get back into the reality of what the goldmans were facing in the days following ron's murder ron's autopsy was conducted two days after his death on june 14th according to the report he died by multiple sharp force injuries including the following. A sharp force wound to the neck, left side, with transection of left internal jugular vein. Multiple stab wounds on his chest, abdomen, and left thigh. Multiple incised wounds of his scalp, face, neck, chest, and a defensive wound on his left hand. There were multiple abrasions on his upper extremities and hands, also believed to be defensive wounds. Notes from the autopsy also indicated that the injuries were incurred before his death. So Kim and Ron moved from Buffalo Grove, Indiana, after their father, Fred, and their mother, Sharon, divorced in 1974. After spending a brief time with his mother, Ron moved to Southern California to live with his father and Kim in 1986. You know, my dad was awarded um, sole custody of my brother and I in the 70s, which was crazy. But, you know, um, that wasn't normal yeah. in, the, in the 70s for a father. Um, and I, I think that as a result of some of the, 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 the trauma with my birth mom leaving and some of the things that occurred, um, and my dad being a, a really dedicated working father, my brother and I were kind of left, you know, it, think now it's probably negative, but we were latchkey kids. I mean, that's what we were. And, you know, we had both keys around our neck and we'd walk home from school and, um, we just took really good care of each other out of, out of a, a necessity. 
um, but also because my dad just created a really loving, nurturing home. Um, when my dad came home, we you know did our homework and we made sure that we ate dinner and he checked our homework. I mean, it was a pretty disciplined home, um, but my dad's a big mush pot and he's a big love and just was really supportive and encouraging. Um, but we just had we got to get our business done. So I think there was a lot of my brother and I just making sure that we were taking care of each other, taking care of the house, making sure the dog was fed, the cats were fed, like, you know, that our chores were done. And, and, but out of that, we just grew intensely close, um, because we didn't have anybody else. We didn't have an extended family that we were super close with. It really was just the three of us. And, um, I, I think that was, that was just an amazing situation that we were in. Um, and then my car accident happened, our car accident, my brother and I just, you know, it just deepened our connection because it was very tragic. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't know. I'm just, I feel really lucky that, that my brother and my dad were the people that had the most profound impact on me. I just feel really lucky for that. Now I just, I, I always did better with, with, with boys. I was like a little, I was rough. I had all the hand-me-downs, you know, um, but he just, he was very much my protector. Um, and he wasn't embarrassed by me or ashamed of me. Um, and I loved hearing his friends talk about, like, I think it was Jeff President who said, you know, we, sometimes we were annoyed that you were there. Like your brother's like, nope, she's sticking around, you know? Mm -hmm. And it was just, it was very, you just always like, you know, looking over shoulder, making sure that I was in close proximity, which didn't change as we got older. I think it's so sweet. I mean, we've talked about her podcast in this episode already and just the fact that they were called the three musketeers and they have like a little modern family where at the time it was super unusual for fathers to get custody yeah. of the kids in this way. And the mom was kind of absentee and, you know, Kim talks so lovingly about just this like warm, amazing environment he curated, which is so nice. Yeah. It's wonderful. And you were crying when you were hearing him talk. I can't even listen to it. I know it's too emotional. It is. So Ron gets to LA and he has dreams. He wants to get married. He wants to have a son and he also wants to open his own restaurant. And the place would have no name, he said. He liked, he wanted to be like the rocker once called Prince. The restaurant would be represented by a symbol, the Egyptian Ankh, which is the symbol of eternal life. Yeah. Why do you think it's so strong that symbol? And like, do you think why? You know, um, the story of the tattoo, my brother had a tattoo of an Ankh, um, you know, with, with his friend, Lauren, um, you know, it's a, a symbol of eternal life. Um, I, I don't know if he thought that at the moment or if it was really because Lauren suggested it and he's like, I'll do whatever mm -hmm. you want. Yeah. Beautiful girl. <laughs> like, I don't really know. Um, but he loved, he loved his tattoo. Um, my dad, not so much. Um, but, uh, you know, I love that he embraced it to the point that the outline, you know, the, his business plans, you know, there was a shape of an onk in the business plans for the restaurant and then there walls would correct. I mean, it was like, it just, it spoke to him. I think he kind of grew into it. And I, and I think, I, I think that, you know, that kind of speaks to him too, that he's open, you know, that he wasn't so headstrong on certain things that he, again, was just kind of open to life happening and, and being welcoming to the things that were around him. Ron surfed, he rollerbladed, played volleyball on the beach. He spent his free nights in the clubs and his mornings at the gym in Brentwood. He did some modeling for Armani, but mostly he kept himself afloat working as a waiter at places like Truly Yours, California Pizza Kitchen, Mezzaluna. He also found time to pitch in at the Thousand Oaks United Cerebral Palsy residence. 
He turned his floor there into a makeshift salon, and he moosed the resident's hair before outings to the movies or to the beach. He was doing a lot more than many 25-year-olds I know. And this monster, this motherfucker, snuffed out his life before he got to reach the big milestones we all look forward to. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. And I think something worth mentioning is that when you hear Ron Golden, when you hear the old JK, OJ case, you think of it. An old, older victims. Yeah. I never realized how young 25 was until I was an adult. Well, also when we, I mean, we were seven, I think when this happened, 25 seems like this old adult. And now, and now like at 32, yeah. You didn't get to do yeah. anything. You're he so, so young. And he was just 
just figuring it out and he had plenty of time. That's the time. You're a waiter. You're figuring it out. Exactly. It wasn't literally until just um, probably the last year um, of his life that he kind of found his calling and what he wanted to do. And, um, you know, he was ready to come to my dad with that information. And he was just kind of stepping into the next phase. Um, but at the end of the day, I've, I've said this a million times that who my brother was in the last couple of minutes of his life really sums up who he was. He stayed to help. He stayed to fight. He stayed to protect. Um, and... You know, as much as it pains me that my brother wasn't more selfish that night, um, it wouldn't have been him to run. Right. So. so we're going to go over some of the broad strokes that explain the variables that led to the convergence of these three people, these three significant people in this case on that night. So OJ and Nicole met in 1979 after he divorced his first wife, Marguerite. And this is interesting, and I didn't know this. I think Jack did when I brought it up. But they had a young child that drowned in a pool um, accidentally the same year that they actually got divorced. So that was a crazy year because he had already he'd been dating Nicole for two years when this happened. Yeah. So imagine the chaos of all of that. So Nicole and OJ actually got married in 1985. They had two children, Sydney and Justin. And there were years of domestic abuse. And their relationship was super contentious, roller coaster up and down. They divorced officially in 1992. But through the entire duration, OJ was physically abusive. And there was ample, ample proof of that. And after the divorce, OJ's abuse towards Nicole continued. He spied on her. He broke into her home. He stalked her, which is what happened on the night of the murders. There were, you know, many calls where she's like, he's breaking down my door. You know, it was reported that he watched her have sex with someone else when she was dating someone new. He would just let himself into that condo, into that little gated area whenever he wanted. And on this particular night, Ron, doing a good deed, was in the wrong place at the wrong time. We took you through the crime up till when the bodies were discovered. Here's what happened and what the evidence suggests happened after. OJ flees without his hat or glove. He goes back the way he came in, around the side of the house, down a pathway in between the house and the flower bed. He exits through a gate in the back, which leads to a driveway, and an alleyway with no streetlights. While leaving the gate, he leaves three drops of his own blood from his wound on his hand on the inside of the back gate. The way I see, you know, as an investigator, I see, you know, Ron is a hero for defending Nicole. Right. But he was also a hero for fighting back because if he doesn't fight back, OJ doesn't lose the glove. Right. And he doesn't cut himself. Right. And because he cuts himself, the blood, the blood comes out and all that there. And what he's doing there is he's giving in any other case, in a case that if it happened right now is a slam dunk. Right. But it was just so screwed up. And because Ron fought back, OJ lost his glove. And O.J. cut himself, and he left his blood at the scene. So Ron's heroics resulted in physical evidence of O.J. being at the scene. O.J. walks across the driveway, which leads to the garages for both Nicole's condo and the next-door neighbors. And he walks up to his Ford Bronco, which he parked in front of the neighbor's garage behind a hedge. And before he gets in the Bronco, he removes the dark-colored tracksuit that he was wearing, which was now covered with blood. 
And while doing this, he spills a bunch of change on the ground. He shoves the tracksuit into a bag, along with a knife, and gets in the Bronco and turns the ignition. And inside the Bronco, he smears the center console three times, leaving three stains of blood, all three containing a combination of Ron, Nicole's, and his own blood from his hand wound. There was also a fourth stain on the console that contained the blood of just Ron and OJ's. And again, this is what Ron was able to do. He was not only able to place OJ at the scene, but by fighting back and causing that wound, he was able to not only leave that OJ's blood was at the scene, but that OJ left a combination of Ron, Nicole, and OJ himself, leaving no doubt that OJ is the killer. Well, and I and I go back and I think, for, so for me during the criminal case, the DNA was really like the, the it moment for me. I mean, I I didn't have any strong opinion of guilt or innocence, you know, walking into that trial. I don't remember feeling that. I remember that the 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 science was like, oh, you can't argue with science. Yeah. I mean, I'm a science girl, so. I just, you know, and I've joked about it, the poor Robin Cotton, you know, she was the, the DNA expert. She just was so, yes, I mean, like her voice, like, and so now you find that you get someone more animated, you get someone that has a little bit more charisma when they're explaining alleles and, you know, all the, the specifics that just kind of go over most of our heads. Um, the jury didn't get it. They just, and even when you looked at the board that Marcia put up that said, you know, one in 700 billion, whatever the you probably have that more than me, but like the statistics were so overwhelming that it couldn't be anybody but him. They just didn't, they didn't get it. Yeah. You know? And so I was like, how can you, how could you not get it? I mean, again, you know, it makes perfect sense to me, but there are people that just, well, it's all planted. Many, many people, when you hear OJ Simpson, what they um, get taken back to is the moments where they were watching the slow speed chase with this Bronco. So this Bronco, I mean, it plays a key role, but not everything having to do with this Bronco made it into the trial. In fact, a lot of the evidence having to do with said Bronco was held back by the prosecution. So in this Bronco that OJ is escaping in, he transfers a drop of Nicole's blood onto the carpet under the steering wheel. He backs out of the driveway into the alley and starts heading towards his house on Rockingham. He drives semi-carefully down the alley at first, but then he starts to gun it once he gets back onto Bundy, which is kind of a busy street. He's headed to his home, which is about two miles away. And on this route, he's on San Vicente Boulevard, and there's a big center island on this particular street. He blows through a red light, causing him to almost hit a Volkswagen Beetle, being driven by a woman named Jill Shively. Jill slams on the brakes, and OJ swerves and ends up on the median. She said, first I felt fear, then anger. I mean, the self-entitlement. Why was this person driving like this? They had to be drunk. She looked at the man in the Bronco. I knew it was a football player right away. The guy began yelling at the car in the westbound lane. That's when I realized it was O.J. Simpson. I had just seen him in a movie, Naked Gun 33 and a third. Now, even if you consider yourself very versed in the O.J. case, you likely don't know who Jill Shively is. Now, Jill comes up a lot in Kim's podcast. So essentially, she witnessed O.J. speeding away from the crime scene on the night in the time frame that the crime occurred. And she was going to be a witness for the prosecution. And Marsha urged her not to do any media interviews, anything that could undermine her testimony because it was so valuable. So Jill ended up doing an interview and getting paid $5,000 to do it, completely discrediting her. And Marsha also had heard some other information that she was a con woman, she was not reliable. 
She's a woman who Kim interviewed on her podcast. And, you know, Jill told Kim in this interview, you know, Marsha told me I'm the reason that OJ is free. I'm the reason that the case was blown. So this is significant. You're very clear in that there's a there's a lot of people that you can pin blame onto, mm-hmm. but ultimately there's the blame for one person mm-hmm. and it's the killer. Mm-hmm. And that's it. That's it. And then you have the smokescreen of the, the trial and, 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 and there's a lot of other people that you can kind of pin little bits of blame, blame to, but you don't do that, which is kind of amazing because... Or cowardice. As, no, it's not <laughs> no, cowardice, it's though, not. because, I mean, after 25 years, you can't have that gnaw at you. So you're talking to people like when you were when you were talking to Marsha Clark mm-hmm. and Marsha did not allow the testimony of Shively. Mm-hmm. And Shively is the woman that apparently um, said she had almost run into OJ because OJ was driving without lights and he ran a red light on San Vicente and Bundy. To not allow that when when there's so many other people that are saying she should have allowed that because that places him at least near the crime scene. Right. How you 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 were very gracious in that. I think I, I I've said this for for twenty plus years that you know Marsha and Chris and and the prosecutorial team sacrificed so much to put this case on and what they endured, you know, professionally and personally, they were the only people that were advocating for my brother. And so it's really hard for me to find fault in their decisions because A, I'm not a prosecutor. B, I don't understand all the evidence. Um, C, I wasn't in the room at those times. I don't know all the information. I'm sure there's things that Marsha is still not going to reveal. Um, I'm sure there's things, using Jill as an example, that we still might not know. So somewhere in the middle, again, there's probably more of the truth. And as you go through it and then you get to the jury and they're telling you it really wouldn't have made a difference. It's not worth yeah. me. Yeah. It's not worth me getting angry at that stuff. It wouldn't have mattered. So let's get back to the events unfolding. What happened after Jill Shively encountered OJ in his Bronco? OJ ends up at Rockingham. He goes into the house. He's leaving blood everywhere. Gets into the shower, leaves bloody socks gets into a limo, and then they drive to LAX. At LAX, he is seen by a witness throwing away something out of a black bag. It was a little zipper bag, he said, and he just zipped it a little bit from the bottom, just enough for his hand to get in the bag, and he was pulling items out of it and putting it into a trash can. And for those of you who don't know, Rockingham is his mansion that was on a street called Rockingham. For, so when we reference Rockingham, that's his estate yes. in that area. And then he takes off on his 1145 American Airlines flight to Chicago to go to this golf outing. And OJ at this point is presumably setting up an alibi. I mean, he was not wasting any time getting on that flight to Chicago. Um, you know, you're, you're the one victim's family member that has been through everything you've you've heard it you've you sat through nine months of a trial more than anybody else really you've you have the 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 stomach for it but does it get it doesn't get easier but what is it what is when you're dealing with the minutiae of the evidence Mm -hmm. do you how does that are you able to separate it at all from the emotion from the emotion that uh now um 
Yeah. Yes and no. I think that as I've as I've matured in this process, I I've always been really um, able to recognize that my heart and my mind don't always coincide. Um, I, I think now I'm frustrated with people that that only choose to see bits and pieces of the evidence or don't understand mm-hmm. it or or read those stupid like dark web weird websites <laughs> yeah. that uh, make no sense at all. I mean, I, I get bombarded by emails from people that I mean, should see the crazy stuff that oh I, I mean. And so, well, the conspiracy theory thing. Yeah. That, but like they just, know. they find things. I'm like, that doesn't even, that, no one even talks about it. Like, where are you coming up with this stuff? But I, so I think that that part of me is frustrated because I don't want to debate the case with people yeah. all these years yeah. later. Um, I, I don't want to have conversations about every single piece of evidence because you either believe it or you don't at this mm-hmm. point. I, I don't need to try to to convince you of a timeline and convince you of all of the DNA and convince you of why my brother's hair and fiber were places that it shouldn't be if the killer wasn't the killer. Like there's certain things right. that I, I don't, I'm tired yeah. of some of that. Um, you know, my brother was, I'm air quoting that my brother was a drug addict and he was sleeping with a married woman and he got what's coming to him. Like I, that's the stuff I'm dealing with yeah. now more than people arguing over the merits of the actual evidence because mm-hmm. I don't think people care about that anymore as weird as that is. Um, because it's gone, it's gone from, and even almost from the very beginning, it went from science to emotion. Right. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. So we know that the trial of O.J. Simpson was the trial of the century and the mass media coverage it received. But just these homicides themselves, I mean, the shock of the families, the vast coverage it was receiving, it was like nothing else, truly. Yeah, there. I mean, the fact that everybody in our country was getting such an intimate view of what was happening has never really happened before. It's never happened before. Before this... And it's it, never really happened after. No, before this, it was the... the they would call the trial of the century the Lindbergh baby trial. That was it. That was the Lindbergh baby trial. Then it was this. Lindbergh baby trial was happening before before cable television, before television, before anything. This was seen by more people than probably will ever be seen ever. And not only that, so we weren't at the trial at this phase. I mean, we all know what happens in the trial. So we're not trying to set up any sort of twist at the end. But the 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 slow speed Bronco chase really set the tone. And it was 90 million people, I think, watched that from their homes. We all, and this is kind of a big theme in our podcast, we watch these things in horror on our TVs. And then we turn it off and we go to bed and our life kind of goes back to normal. 
But in this particular instance, this media coverage that was mischaracterizing Ron and sort of kind of commanding America at this time, like this isn't something the Goldmans could turn off. And um, it's so in the Jewish tradition, you bury somebody, but you don't unveil a headstone until a year later. And that is supposed to mark the end of the grief. This grief has never ended for the Goldmans. Mm -mm. But in this ceremony, which was is hugely important in the Jewish faith, it was it took place on like a sloping, beautiful hill at the foot of a pine tree in Beth Olam Cemetery, which is a Jewish section of Valley Oaks Memorial Park. And all of Ron's friends and family and all these guests attended this unveiling. And it was a granite headstone. And a veil was lifted from the small gray cemetery marker. And it was inscribed with the words, Loving son, brother, and friend, Ronald Lyle Goldman. July 2nd, 1968, June 12th, 1994. Fred Goldman broke down in tears while speaking about his son. His wife, Patty Goldman, stepped up and put her arm around him. Near the grave stood a large arrangement of yellow and blue flowers. A miniature American flag was placed near the marker. So although Ron was officially laid to rest, his headstone unveiled, um, tribute paid at a burial ceremony, this is not where... His story or the Goldman story ends, not even close. And I say that, and the proof is in the fact that we're talking about it here today, in that Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown's murders reverberate. You know, the lack of justice in OJ's acquittal reverberates. It upsets people. It gets people so impassioned and angered to this day, and it's been 25 years. So there are a lot of things we heard in this episode that really make us feel like shit. But I found something that I think is a nice way to end a discussion about Ron Goldman. So we were all trying to get to know Ron through this episode. Um, And I found out what Ron did two nights before he died, which sort of comforted me. And it was the last Friday of his life. So Ron had a date with a model he had been seeing, and her name was Tiffany Starr. According to her, he was brimming with energy that night. They went to dinner, they took a stroll through Venice Beach, and they looked at the ocean, and they walked by boutiques on Main Street in Venice. And they were just having an amazing time in Los Angeles, a place that he really, really loved. And in one boutique window, Ron noticed a metal ankh which is this symbol that was so important to him. He was going to have the restaurant he was going to open in this layout. He had a tattoo of one of these onks on his shoulder. It, it just really embodied who he was. It is an ancient Egyptian symbol for eternal life. And Egyptians believed that one's earthly journey was only part of an eternal life. The onk symbolizes both mortal existence and the afterlife. And the Goldmans also had the onk symbol etched into his gravestone. And this symbol is an appropriate metaphor for Ron, because although his life was stolen and cut short, he lives on through Kim's very obvious passion that she has for attaining justice for her brother and for confronting his killer. You know, what's interesting just about in this conversation, and it's not anything negative towards the two of you, Alexis and Jack, that 
you guys are a different generation. And so I think what was important for me about doing the podcast was to kind of level the playing field because what, what you may have been able to witness from in terms of how the case has been perceived, what evidence, you know, you, you've been watching the fictional BS, um, it was important for me to to make sure that I added some facts to the story to make sure that that I was in control of, of something that was been out of control for me to be able to turn the corner a little bit on something that I think has gotten so far away from what the case was originally about. Um, and so it's been interesting that I've there's a whole new generation of people that are are interested in this, um, and for people that keep telling me to get over it. You know, I, I've struggled with that because it's out of, I don't get to, um, and as long as he's alive and as long as people still have strong feelings about our justice system and, and about him in this case, I got to figure out a way to work my way through it. Um, this is a huge part of my life and, um, I didn't ask for it. And even if I'm minding my own business one day because I'm sitting in a basketball game with my son or something, my phone blows up because of some stupid crap on the internet. Like I don't get to just completely escape from it. Um, this whole concept of moving on and getting over it and closure, it just doesn't exist when you're someone who has suffered a loss, whether it's high profile or in a traumatic way, loss stays with you and, and you figure out a way and some days you're better at it than others. And, you know, I think it's disgusting. People are, that are saying to get over it are probably still the people that are like inundating you. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Most hypocritical thing I've ever heard. And, th- and that's what I'm saying. And I think that, you know, it, you know, I, when we did Oprah a handful of years ago and the, if I did a book came out and, and Oprah told me to find closure and, you know, I just need to move past it or whatever. And then, you know, within weeks, she said that that would be her biggest get to get him as an interview. And I'm like, okay, but you just told me to get over it. You just told me to move on and you're pursuing an interview with him. Like how do those two things reconcile with each other? And I, and I don't fight the process as much as I try to figure out a way to stay above the fray. And I try to find balance. And I had someone, some lady, she's a big killer lover. She sent me the other day that, you know, she's a mother. She should be at home mothering, you know? And I'm like, what? So I, I can't be an advocate. I can't be impassioned about things. I can't believe in victims' rights. I can't fight for what I believe in because I'm a mom. Like, what a better legacy for me to to teach my kid and be a role model to teach my kid. Like, and since when can't people do both? A double murder on its own is horrific, is terrifying beyond words. And the implications of these murders and the residual effects were immeasurable. Possibly the only thing that rivaled the impact of the murders themselves was the trial, the verdict, and what came after. And that is what we intend to cover in part two. So this is the most analyzed crime in American history, other than maybe the JFK assassination. So what did we learn today? Well, I think a good question would be, new things did we learn today? Yeah. And I think for me, I can't even talk about the case anymore, but seeing Kim in person, um, resilience is possible. And I think, I mean, imagine carrying this burden for 25 years, like trying to get your brother justice after you saw his killer walk free. I mean, she is the picture of strength. So I think what I learned, um, 
not giving attention to the case that has been gone over a million times, but to Kim and her podcast and what she's doing. She's healing through this passion. She's she's keeping her brother's memory alive through this passion. And you know what? She's condemning OJ rightfully through this passion. And I think it's so amazing. Yeah. And she's tried to do television shows and they, and she gets cut down at every turn. Yeah. And then she turned to podcasting. And that's why I love podcasting because it's striking out everything. And it's just saying, you know what? It's just a person and their voice and the listener and the truth. And that's it. Well, and she can say probably for the first time ever, exactly whatever the fuck she wants to say, especially to him directly. And if he listens to it or not, it's getting, it's getting said, it's getting put out there publicly. He'll listen. Oh, he'll listen. And he, yeah. He'll listen. He's too obsessed with himself. Yeah. yeah. Too much of a fucking narcissist. So I mentioned this briefly before this was our tribute to Ron and Ron's story and what Ron went through Ron's heroism. Um, kind of the untold, unknown facets of Ron. And it was really important for us to do a part one standalone episode for Ron. But there are a million things that we learned as far as what happened in the aftermath of these murders that will blow your mind, even if you think you know everything about the OJ case. So that is all coming up in part two. So until next week, if you guys have a first degree connection, please email us at hello at the first degree podcast.com. Please don't DM Alexis anymore because she's getting overwhelmed with the flood of DMs. How does it feel to be famous, Alexis? Um, it feels really um, bad to be famous, uh, mostly because I'm not A. And B, um, it's mostly that Instagram overwhelms me. That's why I'm bad at it. So DMs are just, you know, not the most... Uh, productive medium for me email is good i'm at the office you can always give me an email right shoot her an email um also go to the first degree podcast.com and get yourself some merch we're gonna do a little uh merch for photo shoot here sometime soon and uh billy you want to plug your book one more time sure it's called chase darkness <laughs> with me and i'm on book tour right now for the next forever so. yeah go see billy in your respective cities you're yes. going all over the place going all over the place but until then Remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close. But, but not, not that, that close. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.